Well, as you just saw, we're going to start a new series this morning called The Seven Sayings of the Cross. Before we do that, though, I want to call your attention to something in the program. Uh, you'll notice there that uh, I think it's on, the, it's on the front page of the program where all the announcements are. We, we changed the way that we report our financial uh, giving uh, this year. What we've done is that we've decided that we're going to give you a report quarterly of where we're at compared to our budgeted giving, and we do that, we're doing that so that we don't have quite so much to make up in the month of December in the same way that we did last year. So we just want you to be aware of that, and you can see there's still a, you know, there's a shortage for the first quarter, so we, if we could make that up between now and uh, the end of the first quarter, the end of the month of March, that would be fantastic. Just want to make you uh, aware of that. A little disappointed, uh, as excited as I am about this series, I'm a little disappointed about the timing of the series. Uh, when I had planned the series way back uh, late last year, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, as I said, it was sometime in the, in the last few months of last year, I timed it out so that it would start exactly eight weeks before Easter as a way of preparing our hearts for Good Friday and then, of course, for the celebration of Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday. And my... In my thinking, you know, in my, in my dreams, the way that that would work out was that, you know, on Easter Sunday, all of City Church would return to their homes uh, and celebrate Easter together and remark together and rejoice together about the unbelievable, brilliant wisdom of my planning for that sermon series. But for reasons I won't bore you with, it became clear that my perfectly timed plan uh, was going to fall through. So instead, we'll work our way up to Easter in this series. We'll take a break for Easter, and then we'll return to this series after Easter. Let's pray together this morning as we prepare our hearts and our minds uh, for God's Word. Father in heaven, uh, you are the Lord of all people and nations. And heavy on our hearts this morning is the concern for the people of Ukraine and for the people of Russia. For each girl and boy and man and woman living in fear of what tomorrow may bring, we cry out to you for peace, O oh Lord. As we open your word today, transform our hearts and minds so that we may become agents of peace and grace in our own community in these troubled days. And it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Luke chapter 23, or find that in your digital version of the Bible, the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, uh, chapter 23. By the way, I want to thank Rankin Wilborn for speaking uh, for the last couple of weeks. Not only did I appreciate the, the break, but I thought he did a marvelous job as well. Please show Rankin your appreciation, if you would. You know, the fascinating thing about the Gospels, the thing that you can't help be struck, but be struck by is the fact that the preponderance of what the writers talk about is the last week of Jesus, and particularly his death. And this is, in a sense, somewhat unusual because although the Gospels are a special kind of biography, when you and I usually read a biography, death at the end of a life comes as a sadness. But when we read the Gospels, we find that the death of the Lord Jesus comes as a fulfillment of his purposes and the reason why he came. 
So the seven sayings of the cross are the seven last phrases that Jesus uttered in the final hours of his agony on the cross. And in these seven sayings, we find the heart of Jesus' purpose for humanity. Shakespeare once wrote that the words of dying men are seldom spent in vain, for they breathe truth that breathe their words in pain. I'd like to suggest that in the weeks leading up to Easter, one way for you to prepare your hearts would be to take the, the saying of Jesus that we look at on Sunday and use it as the basis of your meditations throughout the week. So this week you could meditate on, reflect on uh, the first saying of Jesus on the cross that we will look at today, and then next week the second saying, and so on. I think that would be a great way to prepare your hearts for Easter. And as we prepare to look at those seven sayings over the course of the weeks ahead, I want to set the context now for the crucifixion of Jesus. So bear with me for just a moment. The cross, of course, was the Roman Empire's brilliant way of eliminating uncooperative people. The Roman Empire would erect crosses conspicuously on hillsides near well-traveled roads close to major cities of the empire. And they would impale those who opposed the emperor like insects on pins for public view. And while the criminal writhed in helpless agony, stripped, stark naked, covered in sweat and blood and feces, the message of Rome's power was conveyed and the lesson learned, don't cross the emperor. But the Jewish people were not so easily intimidated nor willing to be domesticated by the empire. They believed, the Jewish people believed, that they were God's chosen people and that the land upon which they lived was theirs, not the Romans. And so they waited anxiously for their promised Messiah, their king, who they believed would liberate them from the Romans and restore them to national sovereignty. One day, rumors began to swirl around Jerusalem. Wise men from Iran had traveled into the city and they had asked Herod, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And the whisper of a rival king is all it took for Herod to order the infanticide of every baby boy two years old and under. But through a series of supernatural interventions, Jesus' family escaped safely to Egypt where they lived until it was safe to return. Fast forward about 30 years. Jesus stands in the Jewish temple and he says, I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for and the kingdom is at hand. And to confirm his claim that he was the Messiah, he was doing miracles in their midst. Many of the people were excited but the key players in Israel, the religious elites, oh, they hated Jesus. He neither fit their idea of a Messiah nor bought into their religious virtue signaling. He called them hypocrites and blind guides and whitewashed tombs. And so in their rage, 
They had Jesus arrested and they handed him over to the Romans with the false accusation that he was a conspirator looking to overthrow the Roman government. One of Caesar's local representatives, a politician named Pilate, met with Jesus. He cross-examined Jesus and he found that Jesus had done nothing wrong. But in an act of political expedience and legendary cowardice, he washed his hands of the whole thing so as not to offend either the Jewish leaders or Caesar. And he sentenced Jesus to death by the cross. They scourged Jesus first. The end of the whip that they used contained bits of bone and metal that would rip into the flesh and tear chunks away. After whipping him, they put a crown of thorns on his head and they ridiculed him and they spit on him and they nailed him to a cross and they hung a sign over his head that said, mockingly, King of the Jews. And Luke records Jesus' response to all of this in the first of the seven sayings of the cross. In chapter 23 and verse 34. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Look at that verse with me. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, I'll be perfectly candid with you that I thought more than once this week that perhaps the best thing that I could do would be just to stand up here, read these words, and then immediately close in prayer and sit down. Because what am I going to say that could possibly do justice to this profound demonstration of selfless love and mercy? Where in the world do you start with words like this? Now, if I just got your hopes up that maybe I am just going to pray and sit down at this point, I'm sorry to dash them. I'm still going to say some things about these words. It's what pastors do. But do know this. That nothing I'm going to say in the next few minutes will be more powerful, more meaningful, more eloquent, or more life-giving than what Jesus says here in the text. I would, though, uh, like to give you four ways to meditate on this passage in the week ahead. And here's the first. Perhaps this week, as you're reflecting over this, you might start by considering what Jesus doesn't say in this verse, in this verse. what Jesus doesn't say. One ancient Roman philosopher, Seneca, wrote that all people, when being crucified and nailed to a cross, would curse the day they were born. That's how terrible it was. Another Roman philosopher named Cicero wrote that the cursing was so violent and so wicked that the soldiers often cut out the tongues of the men being crucified because their language was so filled with pain and rage and hatred. That's how awful it was. What most modern versions of the New Testament obscure about this verse, including the one that I just read from, is that this verse actually begins like this in the Greek New Testament. It says this. It says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Then is how it starts. In other words, 
after Jesus had been subjected to unspeakable torture and shame and suffering, after he had been despised and rejected and hated, then he prayed that prayer. He could have uttered terrible curses against the Roman soldiers, terrible curses against the Jewish people, the gawkers around him who watched him suffer but did nothing to help him. But instead, what we see is the triumph of redeeming love as Jesus prays for his crucifier's forgiveness. He doesn't curse them. That's what he doesn't do. He doesn't curse them. And, you know, here's the thing. I, I've seen a lot of people come through my office over the years carrying the guilt of their past failures like a backpack full of rocks slung over their shoulder. Things like marital unfaithfulness and addiction and abuse and abortion, acts of violence, neglect. I don't know what you're carrying around in your backpack this morning, but you can rest assured that these words of Jesus mean that there is no unforgivable sin. If crucifying the Son of God on the cross can be forgiven, so can anything that you've done. What are you holding on to? What guilt are you carrying in your backpack that you need not carry any longer? What is it about you or what you have done that you're too afraid, too ashamed to name? Perhaps this week you could reflect on what Jesus doesn't say here in the midst of his agony and what he won't say to you when you bring those things to him, he won't curse you. He won't reject you. He won't shame you. Consider what Jesus doesn't say here. Here's the second way that you might meditate on this passage this week. You might consider that if spoken anywhere but the cross, these words would be meaningless. If spoken anywhere but the cross, these words would be meaningless. See, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, the implication is, Father, forgive them and condemn me. Uh, the word translated forgive here is the Greek word aphiomai, which means to permit something, to let something happen. In other words, God the Son is praying to God the Father, don't stop this crucifixion from happening. Let this happen. Why? Why would that be his prayer? Let this happen. Why? Some of you might uh, remember a few years ago when the U.S. Olympic gymnast uh, doctor Larry Nasser was sentenced for abusing all of, the, uh, all of the young gymnasts that were under his care. One of his victims, a woman by the name of Rachel Denhollander, spoke at his sentencing. In her speech, she extended forgiveness to Dr. Nasser, but at the same time, she asked for justice. She said to the judge, there are two major purposes. Here's what she said. I'll read this to you. She said, there are two major purposes in our criminal justice system, Your Honor, the pursuit of justice and the protection of the innocent. Neither of these purposes can be met if anything less then the maximum available sentence under the plea agreement is imposed upon Larry for his crimes. 
She said, I realize you have many factors to consider when you fashion your sentence, but I submit to you that the preeminent question in this case as you reach a decision about how best to satisfy the dual aims of this court is how much is a little girl worth? How much is a young woman worth? Imagine how all of those girls would have felt had the judge simply said to Larry Nasser, you're forgiven without punishing his crime. Would they have felt justice had been done? done? Would they have felt like their lives mattered? That they were worth anything? You see, the thing that we have to come to terms with is that God is both merciful, that's why he can extend forgiveness, but he is also just. And the only way that he can extend forgiveness and be just at the same time is for the punishment for sin to be paid. Someone had to pay. And from long ago, way back in the pages of the Old Testament in your Bible, it had been clear that the only acceptable sacrifice for sin would be the blood of Israel's Messiah. And so here on the cross, in Jesus, God's mercy and God's justice kiss. If you take Jesus off the cross, this prayer for forgiveness and the love that it displays is absolutely empty and absolutely meaningless. And you see, I'll tell you what's interesting about this is that this is one of the reasons that the cross is so offensive. The cross reminds us that God is not only merciful, but that he is also the judge to whom we are all accountable. And that's something we don't like. We love to think of God as a God of mercy. We like that. That makes us feel good. But we don't like the idea that God is a judge. People say, you know, I don't like that. I... I don't accept that. My God is not the kind of God who would judge anyone. My God is all loving. Does that include Larry Nasser? That he wouldn't judge anyone, including Larry Nasser? Is that the kind of God that you are looking to worship? Maybe you said those kinds of things before. Maybe you would even say that today. My God doesn't judge anyone. I understand what you're trying to do, but, but what you think you're doing when you say that is that you think you're making God more loving by removing his justice. But as Rachel Denhollander was pointing out, you actually have made him less loving by removing his justice. Have you ever thought about that? Here, here's why that's true. Think about that with me now. If you don't have a God who is so just that he would judge sin, then you also don't have a God who loves you so much that he would take your judgment for you. You have a God whose love for you cost him nothing, which in turn makes him less loving, you see. God's justice makes him more loving than the God who never judges because it shows how much he was willing to sacrifice for you. Love that doesn't cost anything isn't love. It's just an empty word. It's a platitude. God's justice makes him more loving rather than less loving because it shows the depths of suffering he would go to in order to extend forgiveness to you. And perhaps this week in your 
meditation on these words of Jesus, perhaps you could spend some time giving thanks for God's justice. And the way his justice conveys the depth of his love for you in Jesus' death on the cross. If spoken anywhere but the cross, these words, this forgiveness that Jesus is offering would, mean, would be meaningless. Here's the third way to meditate on this saying of Jesus this week. Perhaps you could consider to whom Jesus is referring in this verse. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Who's they? To whom is Jesus referring when he says they? Now, you might think that that is self-evident, but one of the lowlights of history is the assumption that Jesus was referring only to the Jews that were around him, the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. And because of that, the day that we refer to as Good Friday has not always been good for Jewish people. In fact, throughout history, it's one of the most frightening days of the year for some Jews. Parts of Eastern Europe during the last century, Jewish people knew better than to leave their homes on Good Friday when Christians, stoked up by the passion narrative that they had just heard in church, poured out into the streets to do as much damage as possible in the Jewish part of town. If you read Jewish history after Charlemagne, the litany of violence is simply astounding. In 1096, the first crusade is launched with a slaughter of Jews in Rhineland. In 1190, Jews are massacred in England. In 1233, the Inquisition offers Jews a choice, either convert to Christianity or die. In 1290, the Jews are expelled from England. In 1348, they are burned in Switzerland for ostensibly causing the Black Death. In 1394, they are expelled from France. In 1492, from Spain. In 1648, the institution of the Jewish ghetto begins in Venice. In 1881, pogroms against Jews are launched in Russia, and then in 1939 to 1945, six million Jews die in Europe, including one and a half million children. And what is so remarkable about this assumption that Jesus was only referring to the Jewish people is that it is patently obvious that both Jews and Gentiles were responsible for Jesus' death. Yes, it was the Jewish people who handed Jesus over to the Romans, Gentiles, but it was the Romans who sentenced him to die and nailed him to a cross. And I asked myself, how in the world could anyone have missed that? How in the world did Gentiles miss that throughout history? And the answer to that question is in this phrase, where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They do not know what they are doing. Do you understand what that phrase means? What it means is that you and, ha and I have a capacity for such self-deception that we can delude ourselves into believing things about ourselves and about God that are not true. We can even delude ourselves 
into blaming everyone else for Jesus' death instead of ourselves. We can delude ourselves into believing that we're good when we are not. That's a real problem with religious people, by the way. We can delude ourselves into believing that our most heinous wrongs are perfectly justified. I suspect that's what the Roman soldier, uh, what the Roman guards were thinking. I merely obeyed orders when I crucified Jesus. We can delude ourselves. The women around Jesus who were weeping for him, Jesus says to them earlier in this chapter, he says to them, he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Now, why would he say that? Because until you understand the depth of your sin and the depth of your need for forgiveness, you won't understand what you're really weeping for when you see Jesus on the cross. In other words, as compassionate as those women were around Jesus, they didn't understand that the injustice that was done to Jesus was done by them too. Because their own souls were so desperately corrupt, he had to die for them. Give them, for they do not know what they're doing, Jesus says. They are filled to the brim with self-deception. And so are you. And so am I. I don't remember, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure where I heard this quote first. It may, I always want to make sure that I attribute the right person. So I'm going to just say that it might have been Rankin Wilborn, our discipleship pastor, where I heard this first. But wherever I heard it, it's originally from the author Joseph Conrad in a book called Lord Jim from the late 19th century. And he says this. You may have heard Rankin say this before. No man understands his own artful dodges to escape the grim shadows of self-knowledge. And as you're meditating this week on these words of Jesus, perhaps spend some time asking him to reveal the places in your heart and your mind that you are self-deceptive. What are the things that you are so certain about, so sure about, so convinced about with respect to your heart, your motives, your outlook that might be nothing more than self-deception? You might ask yourself this. When my spouse or someone that I care about tells me something about myself, why is it that I'm so defensive? Why is it that my first response is never, tell me more? But instead, no, 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 you're wrong. I'm not, I'm not selfish. You, you are. Perhaps that's self-deception? Perhaps. And for those of you who are here this morning who might argue like I argued a long time ago in my life, that your problems with Jesus and the message of Christianity are intellectual, like you just can't believe it because there's too many intellectual issues you have with Christianity, perhaps it would be wise to consider if that is itself a self-deception. That's not to say that you might not have intellectuals with, intellectual issues with Christianity that need to be worked out. But perhaps the intellectual is less noble, uglier than you are willing to admit. Perhaps it is itself an artful dodge 
to escape the grim shadows of self-knowledge. Now, for those of you who would say, well, this is, you know what, this is, this, is, this is the problem I have with Christianity. Listen to yourself. It's so negative, Jeff. I, 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 I want something self-affirming, not something that tells me how bad I am. If that's what you think I'm saying this morning, you are completely missing the point. The Christian gospel says, yes, it does say that I am so deeply flawed that Jesus had to die for me. But it also says that I am so deeply loved and valued with all of my flaws that Jesus was glad to die for me. And there's nothing more affirming than that. But to be sure, to be sure, to get to that, to get to that sense of being so deeply, deeply loved and valued, you do have to be willing to acknowledge the reality of your own sinfulness and need for forgiveness. But boy, it's so much easier to blame everybody else than to blame yourself, isn't it? Consider this week to whom Jesus is referring when he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He's referring to you and he's referring to your capacity for self-deception. Fourth way, this is the last one. Fourth way for you to meditate on this saying of Jesus this week. I want you to consider why Jesus asked the Father to forgive. Why did Jesus ask the Father to forgive them? Did you notice that? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's really quite remarkable because never before in the Gospels had Jesus asked the Father to forgive someone. He granted forgiveness himself. You might remember there was a paralyzed man that Jesus came across uh, in, in, in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus says to the paralyzed man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. He offers it. He says, your sins are forgiven. To the prostitute who poured out her tears all over Jesus' feet, he said, he said to her in Luke chapter 7, he said, your sins are forgiven. Why now does he ask the Father to forgive instead of just granting forgiveness himself? Well, the answer is in the nature of what happened to Jesus on the cross. Early in the Gospels, the Gospel writer Matthew quotes one of the prophets of the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. And Speaking of Jesus' birth, he says this. He says, all of this, all of Jesus' birth, all the events surrounding Jesus' birth took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the prophet Isaiah. And here it is. You, you'll be familiar with this verse. You hear it every Christmas. I think Charlie Brown says it. Charlie Brown? Anyway. He says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him what? What do they call him? What, what do they call him? You know? They will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. Now that name Emmanuel would be, would be fulfilled most completely, not just in Jesus' birth and life on the earth, but in his death on the cross. Because in his death on the cross, Jesus became God with us in a way no one could have ever imagined. The perfectly righteous God-man became sin, became 
became sin on the cross. That's how deeply he identified with us. He became sin. If you've ever watched a loved one suffer in agony with an illness of some kind, you know the helplessness of it all. You can sympathize, you can empathize, but you're always standing outside their pain, aren't you? Jesus didn't stand outside of our brokenness. He entered into our condition. That's how deeply he identified with us. He became sin on the cross, the New Testament says. And so in this moment, all he could do was pray. He gave up on the cross by becoming sin, the authority and the privilege to forgive sin, and in fact became sin to identify with you. That's how deeply he became God with us. And as you meditate on this saying of Jesus this week, perhaps you might consider the people in your world who have hurt you deeply, who need forgiveness, and to just consider that you have not had to travel as far as Jesus had to travel to identify with them. Jesus was perfectly righteous. You already are a sinner, just as they are. You have hurt people, just as they have hurt you. Having a sense of how deeply loved you are by Christ, how deeply he identified with you as a sinner, allows you to forgive when someone wrongs you because you can afford to be generous with forgiveness in the same way that Christ was. Now I'd just like to ask you to bow your heads with me for a moment. And for those of you who have come to a place in your life where you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps there's someone that you could pull up on the big screen of your mind who's hurt you deeply, to whom you could extend forgiveness. to whom it might bring great peace to know that you have forgiven them. Great peace to them to know that. You can identify with them much easier than Jesus could have ever identified with you because you too are a sinner. And while forgiveness doesn't happen in us, in a split second, it doesn't happen in one moment. You can begin the process of forgiveness today simply by opening your heart to the possibility of forgiving them. And then for those of you who are here today who perhaps would say, like I said many, many years ago, I've got too many intellectual problems with Christianity Perhaps this would be a good day to ask yourself, is it possible that my intellectual problems with Christianity are nothing more than self-deception? Yes, I have questions that need to be answered. Yes, I have things I need to seek out and investigate. But perhaps there's something more there. Maybe I'm hiding behind the intellectual so that I never really have to look at how deeply I too am in need of forgiveness.
Would you just consider that in this moment? Lord Jesus Christ, we will spend eternity thanking you for what you have done on the cross for us. And we recognize that the love that you convey to us is not just platitudes, it's not just a word, it's something that you have demonstrated to us tangibly by being willing, by gladly taking the justice that we so deserve ourselves, and taking it upon yourself. And we worship you as Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would be the kind of place that extends so generously the kind of forgiveness that you extend to us because it is only there, it is only there that real peace for our community, for the world is found. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.